Älskar du den här podden? Stötta den genom IKAs nya supporterfunktion. Det är helt upp till dig hur mycket du vill bidra med och det finns ingen bindningstid. Klicka på länken i poddbeskrivningen för att visa din uppskattning och stötta podden. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Um, there is a an American podcast called. WTF with Mark Maron, yeah. uh, and it's kind of a big thing. And he, he, it, it, he created a buzz when he interviewed President Obama in his garage. And I feel that this is almost as close that I will get getting to interview Mr. Gary Fisher. <laughs> Welcome to episode 17 and a long interview with a guy who invented the mountain bike. Mr. Gary Fisher. Gary came to Stockholm for the Swedish Bike Expo and thanks to Trek Sweden we could make this interview happen. If this is the first time that you listen to Husky and you want to hear more of the English episodes in the international series, just search for Husky International in your podcast reader. The Swedish outdoor podcast Husky is made in cooperation with Lundhags. My name is Magnus Ormestad. Um, to start off with a with a super light question, a bicycle. Like, what is it to you? Oh, it's the world's happiest machine. It's the one that has really paid off. When people ride that, they say, "Ah, oh, technology is a wonderful thing." Yeah. <laughs> So it's. I heard. I heard someone say once that it's the. Uh, I don't know, second to albatross or something. It's like the most energy efficient way to propel yourself, like to, yes. to with movement. Oh, for a human, by far. Yeah. It is uh, so much more efficient than walking, and of course, you know, I mean, for a human, it's the most efficient transport on earth, no doubt. And an albatross, oh my God, they're big wings and everything. They they play with the wind and the currents, you know, and they're absolute experts, and they don't move their wings very much at all. Um, have you always been a? Have you always had a thing for for bikes and bicycling, even as a kid? As a kid, yeah. I started I started riding with my friends. Oh, when I was, I mean, I, the first time I rode a bike was I was four and a half, five years old. Uh, when I 
my friends when I was 10 years old. I, I started riding with them a lot. And then when I got serious, uh, I went to, a, I got a nice bike. My dad got me a, a good 10-speed when I was uh, 12. Like a road bike? A real road bike, a Legnano from Italy. And um, I met uh, some other kids that were bike racers, you know, 15, 16, 17 at this bike shop where I bought the bike and I was small. Oh my God, I was tiny. And uh, they said, you know, I wanted to go on a ride with them. They said, no, you can't, you're too small. I said, no, I'm going with you guys. And I just followed them, they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> and we rode about, you know, 25 miles. And when I got back, I said, I really want to be in a club. I want to be in your club. And I said, okay, we'll make you a mascot. <laughs> and I started crying. And I said, okay, okay, we'll let you in the club. And uh, I joined a club and my mother had to cut down the jersey so it fit me. I mean, cut it down and everything, restitch it. And there's a Belmont Bicycle Club, or the BBC, and it was an old Londoner. You know, this Larry Walpole, he was from the eastern, uh, East London, and he had a very thick accent, Cockney accent. And he was a, a mechanic for Pan American, and uh, he had actually been a POW in World War II. And brother, did he have a sense of humor. It was hilarious. <laughs> and he took really good care of me, you know? And we'd go on these long Sunday rides. Sometimes they'd be 80 miles. And I was just a little kid. And you know, I remember one time he like got some wire from the side of the road, you know, from a fence wrapped it around my head tube, wrapped it around his seat post, and towed me in, oh, about five miles to this lunch spot called Pete's Cafe in Half Moon Bay, California. And Pete was an old Italian, and Pete would feed any bike rider, any serious bike rider, for free, you know? <laughs> it, was, it was something. I mean, there were so few bike riders in that day. Uh, you were either Oh, like a kid riding a bike? When we say a DUI victim, someone who got a drunk driving charge, uh, or if they were any kind of serious, you either knew who they were, and if you didn't know who they were, oh man, you'd stop, you'd exchange phone numbers. They were like in your inner circle. So it was, uh, it was really lonely then. <laughs> so the, the, um, like the influences of the, because in the U.S., you didn't really have that kind of bike culture by then. Oh, so no. the influences came from the U.K. and came from Europe, Italy, or yeah, yeah. And it was uh, 1962, and um, it was the bike had almost died in the 50s, and there were 1,000 registered racers in the entire United States. 1,000, and you know, you go to. Um, I remember going to the Pan American uh, selection races. Uh, there was this time trial. There were 45 riders that showed up. You know, it was the biggest deal, you know. And there was, uh, there came though, it was a big resurgence of road riding. And it happened in California, Northern and Southern California. Um, actually, the US national championships hadn't had a road race for many years. It just been on the track since like the 30s at all. You know, there wasn't any national road championships. It was just track racing. And then in 1964, they held the first 
national championship road race down in Los Angeles. And that was a, that was a big deal. It was like a whole resurgence of road racing. So it, it really, when I got into it, um, it was really starting to grow, you know. And it made that first jump, you know. And it made the first jump in the 60s. And uh, then 1973, we had the gas wars. You know, we had like a big embargo of oil for the United States. And then there were these lines around the block, down the street, at all the gasoline stations because it was really hard to get gas. And bicycle sales in the United States went from 4.7 million to 15 million <laughs> in one year. And it was crazy. You know, you go into a bike shop, there'd be three bikes in the shop, three. And they'd say, those aren't for sale. You can check it out. You can order one off of that, and it'll come in a couple of months. It was like that. And what happened, I mean, sales went to 15 million in that year, and then oil and gasoline become available again, and then, then they dropped down to 7 million the next year. You know, it really, a lot of people bought bikes, and a lot of people put them in the garage and never rode them again. Because the car is so much more convenient, they think. Well, yeah. I mean, that whole, you know, the story. I mean, it's an incredible story of marketing and uh, promotion and uh, political uh, maneuvering. And, you know, it was Chairman Sloan of General Motors who stood up, addressed his shareholders in 1932 and said, only 10%, only 10% of the American people drive an automobile, and quite honestly, only 10% need to. We have a plan to change that. And they did, oh my goodness. They formed a consortium. Standard Oil, Mack Truck, Firestone Tire, General Motors. They bought 87 different rail entities up in the United States. Then they would uh, lower the services. That is, instead of a trolley or a train coming every five minutes, they come every 15 or 20 minutes. Um, they all went into receivership, 100% of them. And then for forgiveness of debt, They would turn over the uh, right-of-way to the city, to the municipality, under the proviso that you tear out the tracks and you pave them over because Mack Truck was making the buses. They were extremely successful. They, uh, and then the U.S. government found them all guilty of a conspiracy in 1947. And they fined the individuals a dollar each and the corporations $5,000 each. It was an absolute slap on the wrist. And, um, You know, the culture in the United States has been like five generations of people that know no other way than to drive around. And you had people like Walt Disney and all these great, you know, the World's Fair and stuff would show the future and things like the Jetsons and things. And it was, you know, automobiles and big highways and stuff were really going to change things. Then in the 50s, um, President Eisenhower started the interstate freeway system. And this was the biggest expenditure uh, that America has ever had, you know, adjusted for inflation and everything, before or since. We took, we made tremendous amounts of money off of World War II. We, we created all the weapons. And um, we spent a lot of that money building that interstate freeway system. And then um, a lot of uh, developers, Uh, housing developers. My father was a big-time architect in San Francisco. 
And so I learned about all of this stuff. They created a thing called the suburb. And we had tremendous opportunity. There was um, these highways that you could get out of town in just a few minutes. And this land was totally cheap outside of town. And um, they convinced the populace to move out of town, and, and they did. And the inner cities decayed. And it's changing now. Now we see a lot of the young people, they'd like the young people in the United States, you know, we told them 15 years ago, go to the universities, study hard, you'll be the king of the world. They went to the university, they graduated well, they didn't get the job. <laughs> they moved back in with mom and dad. Dad has a channel changer, they have a $100,000 debt. They pull the bike out of the basement and they say, you never lied to me. And the kids, they're getting back on the bikes and, and they're moving back into the cities. They're saying, this TV is like deadly dull. I want real life. You know, I'm sick and tired of being stuck out here in the sticks. And they're moving back into the cities like crazy. And it's funny, I mean, in the, the estates now, you go in the suburbs, it's a lot of old people. You come into the cities, oh, teeming with, with young people. And today, 18% uh, of Americans don't live in the cities. And this is the smallest number in our history, and it grows smaller every day. So we look at, and now, there's a tremendous opportunity in the cities, because the cities of the United States are 30 to 35% of their land space is parking lots. And parking lots, that's a lost leader. You don't make money off of that. You do a parking lot, so you get shoppers in and people in to like spend money and everything. But now uh, the cities are starting to say like San Francisco is now allowing you to build an apartment building. And it used to be you build one unit, you gotta have two parking spaces, you know, or one unit and one and a half or whatever. But now it's one unit and zero. And you know, the, the opportunity of developing all these empty parking lots, these big spaces that just create uh, ugliness. You know, they, they make our cities look like, uh, you know, gasoline alley, a muffler shop. Uh, you know, they make our cities gray. We go and we pave everything over and there are layers and layers of poison. And we bring fine particulates and massive crushing deaths into our cities. This is crazy. You know, a hundred years ago, a family would raise their kids in the city because that's where culture was and is and i go around i talk to a lot of city leaders now and say look we're going to make this a great place to raise a family and they're like yes <laughs> it's a wonderful time right now so you feel like there's uh like a second wave coming or do you uh, you, you you smell a change in the air oh big time mm -hmm. because we figured it out you know, the human being needs to run its motor all the time You know, the, the sedentary lifestyle is death. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful revolution. You know, we have all this medical evidence now that says, uh, you know, you ride a bike around, you walk around, and man, you're brighter, you show up on time, and uh, you work better, and you feel better, and your health is better longer. So do we have a huge problem with that too. You know, the United States right now is spending 17, 17% of its gross domestic product is spent on healthcare. That's crazy. 
You know, and you look at all, a lot of other countries are in the 9 to 11% range. And if you take that spread between 11% and 19 or 17% of a, a gross domestic product, that is a bigger dollar amount than the Chinese debt and the federal debts combined. And people are starting to wake up to like, <laughs> this is crazy. It doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. So it's a... Uh, I love it. You know, it's like the Chinese will say, uh, you know, when you have a, a crisis and a lot of change, oh, man, there's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> yeah. They don't freak out. They look for the opportunity. <laughs> um, uh, growing up, you, you said uh, your father was an architect. Yeah. Um, what did you have in mind? What did you want to become? Did you, uh, did you have like a kind of an academic career in front of you or? Not at all. I wasn't a good academic. You know, I, I like, it was a miracle that I got through school. I was so bored of school. You know, I, I really didn't want to do it. And I, uh, it was funny um, when I was young, when I was like uh, 16 and racing, Uh, I was growing my hair long. I mean, not long at all, just barely over my years. And they said, hey, you can't race anymore. And a funny thing had happened. Uh, there was a bike race a few weeks previous that they had a rock and roll concert at. And um, Grateful Dead and a quick silver messenger service played there. And these bands became famous, but then they weren't famous at all. Oh, my God. You know, 100 people showed up for the concert, you know, and in three days, a hundred people. It was nothing. And so I met the bands. And I, I literally ran away from home and uh, to the Hate Ashbury and I joined the Grateful Dead, you know, entourage, right? And oh that was incredible because it was a whole the whole original movement which the Hate Ashbury was cool for about six months. It was a real transformative uh, mind expanding, right? That was the whole idea, and indeed, you know, there was uh, the drug, LSD. And I was friends with Jack Leary, Timothy's son, and I used to take care of the bear. The bear was Stanley, Augustus Stanley Owsley III. He had made more LSD than any other human on Earth. He also did, he was an engineer. He did the wall of sound for the Grateful Dead. He did all kinds of like, music and sound innovations that are big times today. And he passed away a couple of years ago in a car crash in Australia, you know? And oh, he was something else, you know? Uh, he was some, something of an inspiration. And the band was, you know, when I first met him, oh, they were awful. <laughs> they were, you know, not good musicians or anything. They didn't make any money, you know, they were broke and everything, but they worked, 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 and they got to be good musicians, and their stuff got really popular. And, um, but... Kind of like the mountain bike. Oh, yeah. Took a, lot of, took a lot of hard work, but then it became popular. Well, that whole, <laughs> that whole thing, it, like the media got a hold of the, uh, the Haight-Ashbury scene. And they didn't talk about the mind expanding parts. They talked about sex, drugs, rock and roll. Oh, and did we mention it's all for free? And so all these kids came out. And we sort of, you know, the people in the scene, they were like, man, these kids don't get it. They were like panhandling, they were scruffy, they were like just dirty hippies, right? 
And that wasn't really what the original scene was about. And Haight-Ashbury became sort of an ugly place. And there came methamphetamines and cocaine. And cocaine was really, ugh, it was awful. I remember this guy came from New York. He has this huge tin of cocaine. And he's telling everybody in The Grateful Dead, he's saying, it's organic, it's not addictive. And man, they were like going for it. And I remember people, a few members of the band and a few of the hangers on, they, they couldn't stop. And uh, it was ugly. That's a nasty, nasty drug. So basically I got out of that scene. You know, in 69, I left it. I went back to, you know, being a bike racer again. Thank God, you know, it was, it was something. It was a, quite an education, you know, the whole thing to see. But, uh, um, but didn't you bring any of the, like the good parts, like with the uh, kind of, uh, uh, what kind of um, inspiration did you? Uh, uh, well, I was thinking big. Yeah. You know, it was like, like the whole... When I first met him, you know, what you could have for an electronica, a concert, it was really primitive, you know, PA systems and everything, the whole thing. And they just said, look, you know, I mean, this, this thinking outside the box, box about we're going to make this whole concert space and everything. And I was doing it with light shows, you know, like I made all my own projectors. I had 10 people in a show. I was a kid, you know, and I would modify and hot rod all these projectors. It was crazy, you know, and all these uh, uh, optical things. I got way into it and custom made. I mean, I got the one subject in school I got straight A's in, metal shop. Oh my God, I, I'm really good with my hands, you know. Hey, I can weld, I can braze, I can silver solder, but, <laughs> You know, I chose not to be a, a frame builder like that way because I wanted to build a big company. I don't like to think small. I like to think big. I But like you had that vision from, from the get-go that you, yeah. uh, when you started these modifications, these mutations of the bikes, you well, had it, a... The first, the first thing with the mutation was selfish interest, right? Because mm. I'd been, you know, in the, in the woods, Marin County, where, you know, everybody in 69, came Altamont with the Rolling Stones, that was a mess, you know? And, and we like, would hire the Hells Angels all the time, Hells Angels, because we could trust them. We couldn't trust security guards because there were drugs backstage, right? So the Angels, they were great until that concert. And in that concert, all of a sudden, there are 500 pretty women backstage. You know, we didn't have a really strict backstage list. And the, manage, the band managers are going like, What is going on to Sonny Barger? You're out of control. You guys are out of control, right? The Sonny Barger, the Hell's Angels. And so what's an angel do when they get out of control? They get violent. The dream was over. Everybody left town. You know, I left town. I rode, I moved to Marin County back there, and I was living with a, uh, an offshoot of the Grateful Dead, uh, New Riders of the Purple Sage. It was a country-western brand band, and I had control of the house, free rent, I take care of everything, you know, and I just started riding my bike again, and I started road racing again. And I had gone to high school in Marin County and school and everything, and my high school friends would say, we know you're a bike racer, a bike guy, so you gotta come with us out in the woods, because we do this thing, man, we go out and ride in the woods, we take old bikes. And the whole point was, you spend no more than $5 on a bike. You get it at the dumps or Goodwill, 
And the old ballooner bikes were the most popular because they're the most durable. And I'd ridden a cross bike and I had, you know, ridden cyclocross races and all that. But a cross bike, I'd go out with a cross bike in the woods and there'd be a lot of rocks and things. And you'd take, you'd ride for two hours, then you'd come home and patch tires for three hours. This was crazy. And I rode this big, the big fat bikes with my friends and it was like, man, you could just totally let loose and go fast down the hills. However, the brakes were totally ridiculous. I mean, it was, you had to, it was just a coaster brake on the back and you couldn't feather the brake. You had to lock it up, unlock it, lock it up, unlock it. And you couldn't just go straight with the uh, rear brake on. Man, you had to slide the thing sideways to get, any, get the thing to slow down. And, you know, this was fun. And this was on dirt roads. Absolutely. Marin County was the birthplace of low growth in the United States. And guess what? It didn't go anywhere, you know, because here we are next, next to this big metropolitan area, you know, San Francisco. Today, 7 million people live in the Bay Area, 800,000 people in, uh, in uh, San Francisco. And, you know, we're so close to it. And the, some developers from Los Angeles wanted to take the population from 220,000 to 1.4 million. And it was, and just, you know, cover all the hills with houses and everything and freeways. And they got stopped by the Sierra Club and the Audubon Society. It was a miracle. And you look at Marin and it's still today, I mean, it's gone from 220,000 220, in 1970 to today it's 260,000, okay? Barely any growth. Meanwhile, all the other counties all around surrounding Marin have doubled and tripled in size. And it's funny, they drive through us, they paralyze us. But man, what an incredible place to ride. Big, wide open spaces. And in the 60s, you know, mid 60s, you could drive your car out there on the dirt roads and everything. There were no gates, chains, nothing. And so a lot of hippies started camping out out there. And it was a real fire hazard out there. <laughs> and so they put chains and gates up and everything. And then the bike became the golden key to the area. And there was nobody was out in the, in the outdoors to speak of in that day. In those days, you could go ride your bike all day long. You might see one or two other people. It was a miracle, you know, and all the way out to the Pacific Ocean and everything. It was great. So this was in high school. I would ride with some of my friends a few times but I didn't really have time for it and uh, I went and you know in high school I got involved with Grateful Dead and the whole thing and then I got out of it and I started racing again and uh, I became first category in one year I was I was really hot really yeah, I raced so much before and I had all that knowledge and everything and how to train and everything and I came back really quickly. It was really great. And then uh, a little bit later, I, uh, you know, from the, the new riders, I was living with them. And, uh, they, you know, the guys in the scene kept telling me, there's this guy, he's a roadie for a band called the Sons of Champlain. He looks just like you, man. He, and he, you know, he had to, he, I had an orange colnago. He had an orange colnago. <laughs> you got to meet this guy. You know, you got to meet this guy. And finally, I'm riding along and there he is. And we're like, wow, cool. And I meet Charlie, 
and we go over to the Grateful Dead office, and they're, do, they're doing their first big album cover. And I'm there, and Char, I blew Charlie away, because I'm there, you know, like art director, you know, like, because I was big into like art and, and graphics and the whole thing, and I helped direct what the album was looking like, and Charlie's like sort of blown away. And we're both like, we said, shit, man, I got a room, said Charlie, and I moved in, and it was great. We were having a great old time, you know, and uh, Charlie, you know, I showed him like this whole scene with uh, the clunkers. I got one, you know, and I got one for Charlie and or just the old single speed ones. And then I was like, okay, it's time to like modify this thing. This is, you know, it was obvious, you know, put gears on it and put really good brakes on it. And I was working at a bike shop called Wheels Unlimited and my boss was never there. And I had the run of the whole place. I was the only employee. So I had all the time in the world to work on this bike. And uh, it took about a month to make the bike right, to make it work. And uh, this was in uh, September of uh, 1974. And uh, you know, I got some motorcycle brake levers, motorcycle brake cables, big tandem drum brakes, big ones. and. Um, you know, wide range gearing, you know, Suntour derailleur on the, on the front, uh, Shimano derailleur on the rear, big wide Shimano or Suntour uh, freewheel, you know, and, and up front was a TA Cyclotourist crank set, you know, from France. You know, 26, 36, 46 with 175, 180, or even 185 length cranks, because we could get all those crank lengths. I had the knowledge. I've been working in bike shops. I've been studying bike. Bike was like my, just my, my passion for such a long time. And I put this bike together and I went out and, uh, you know, we went on a regular ride and I reversed the ratio. You know, the ratio, it was like 80% of the time you'd spend pushing up hills with your bike, with a single speed bike, 20% riding. And I made it so you'd ride 80% of the time and you only had to push 20%. So that, and, and the bike was heavy duty enough that too. I mean, you, in the early days with, you know, the old clunkers, the single speech, you go out with six guys and three of them would wind up dragging the bike out of the woods. <laughs> they just break, you know, and the rear, you know, that rear hub, that coaster brake hub, oh, it just starts smoking grease on a, you know, on a long descent. And then you'd have to, you know, after the ride, you'd have to repack the hub and do all, you know, maintenance and everything like no, 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 no. It's not the way I wanted a bike to be. You know, I, I was a race bike in those days. You know, it was Reynolds or Columbus tubing, and it was Campagnolo. I mean, that was it. Everybody rode Campagnolo, except for the French. <laughs> you know, everybody rode Campagnolo because it was reliable. You know, it was really reliable. It was bulletproof and everything. And, I wanted to make my clunker the same way, you know, I just, I didn't want to have to fuss around with it every single time I rode it. That was baloney, you know, so I put together the, my, a geared bike for myself, you know, one for Charlie, one for, you know, a guy down the street, you know, in the first year I made about 20 of them for friends. And I thought, you know, this is still just going to be for athletes. It's hard to do out here. but. It blew my mind. Some of the guys and ladies I made bikes for, it changed their life. They'd tell me, man, I love it out here. You know, you go out in the woods and we'd say, well, 
you know, you don't have to deal with the cops, the cars, or the concrete. <laughs> and it's, you know, total freedom. And it was at that time I said, this is going to be big. This is going to be something. Because I'd had the experience. I mean, I loved the bike. And I wanted to tell everybody about it. But the road race bikes, you know, of the day, the saddles were hard and narrow. The tires took, you know, you had to pump them up every day. And man, people couldn't assume the position. They couldn't lean over like that. And they were afraid of traffic and everything. And this bike, you know, took care of all those issues in people's head. It really did. And it just went boink right in my mind. This is gonna be big. You know, people ask me all the time, do you ever have any idea it was gonna be like this? And I said, well, actually, yeah, this was the plan the whole time for me, you know? And I'll tell you, like, a lot, the, the one thing that's really impressed me and surprised me and everything has been the gravity stuff. And I mean, I loved going fast downhill, but man, the air these guys get <laughs> and the backflips yeah. and all the crazy stuff, you know, it's like, wow. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ow, oh, it blows my mind. You know, but uh, I was still a road racer in 75, 76, 77, 78. I, I was just right, racing, racing, racing all the time. And I was actually really good friends with Bob Lamond, Greg's father. And Greg, you know, he used to ride a lot with Greg Lamond when he was a teenager. And man, that guy was such a natural. He was so incredible. You know, and finally... 1979, and I'm uh, out at Colorado Springs, Olympic Training Center. I was out there for three months. I was on the Olympic long team. I wanted to go to the Olympics, man. I was going to make the team. However, our president, Jimmy Carter, said, hey, we're not going. We're boycotting the Moscow Olympics. And at that moment, when I heard that, I said, okay, it's time to start the bike company. So, you know, all I said, thanks to the peanut farmer. 
Yeah. How do you like that? <laughs> and also, Eddie Bersevich, who is the national team coach, he didn't like me. That was a problem, too. Politics, my friend. And so, you know, I said, Charlie, we're going to start a bike company. We are? Cool, man. We pulled $600 between the two of us, and we started the company. And I thought of a name, Mountain Bikes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it wasn't around there before, so it was an obvious name. And the first year, we made 160 bikes, and it was crazy. You know, we would uh, ask for a deposit, $500, because the bike wasn't cheap. The bike was $1,320 complete, okay? And, let and that me, was in 79. Right. Yeah. Let me put this in perspective. You could buy a full Campanillo Colnago for $450. You could buy a full custom Ben Sirota with full Campanillo and beautiful blue Mavic rims for $9.95. But we used to say to people, well, you don't want a cheap parachute, do you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sales pitch. And they were beautiful. <laughs> the bikes were beautiful. And I selected all the dimensions were, you know, Campagnolo, Campagnolo English dimension. So they were, they would fit right in with all the very best equipment. And indeed, I'd run around and get just the most, the best, most exotic equipment. And the paint jobs were incredible. And I used Tom Ritchie as a frame builder. And he was prolific. Oh my goodness. I mean, I would buy the tubing and I'd come with my, my car down to Tom's place with all the tubing. And he had two guys, Dave and Devin, that would cut the tubing, tack the frames together. They did the setups, right? And Tom would do one thing. He would fill it braze. He'd just sit there and fill it braze all day long. I'd come pick up all the bare frames, unpainted frames, no fork, take them to the painters. I'd order forks. I'd order all the parts. You know, and Charlie and I, we had a little, little company, little tiny place. People would come in there and say, this is it? I thought this place <laughs> would be much bigger. And we did all the assembly. We did all the marketing. We, uh, you know, we did all the sales, and Tom did nothing but make frames. That's it. Just the, just the brazing part, you know. Tom was an incredible craftsman, you know, an incredible, a great engineer and everything, and just able to crank it out, because I knew what you needed. You needed a great design, a lot of hype, and man, you had to deliver. And the hype, the marketing, huh. My grandfather helped me. My mother helped me. My it's grandfather. It's a family business. Well, <laughs> my grandfather worked in Hollywood for 50 years. My grandfather, he worked with Hal B. Wallace originally. He was the original Hollywood publicist. And he, uh, my grandfather worked, his first big job was there were all these actors in the silent movies and they were going to talkies. So they all had to learn English. And how to speak, because a lot of them couldn't really speak, it didn't really matter, but man, you wanted to keep those actors, they were famous, right? And they needed to speak in English that was not the king's English, because that would be speaking down to the American people. So he developed what's called American Broadcast English, 
and he created this job called the script director. And indeed, uh, one of his scripts, his script for uh, A Midsummer's Night Dream, uh, which was done in 1935 and starred Mickey Rooney and a whole bunch of Hollywood stars, that script is in the Smithsonian. And uh, he used to bring Ronald Reagan, Joan Crawford, Errol Flynn over to our house all the time. And he used to just, just nail me all the time. And this is how you stand, this is how you look at the camera, and this is how you speak, and this is what you say. And um, he, my mother, more than him, helped me on, this is how you get publicity. Oh my goodness. I mean, you know, we used to go down to a little rat hole park in Hollywood that all the Hollywood actors would be at and everything. And they had a horse corral and everything. And I had a total cowboy outfit when I was four years old. And I got a photo now of me, an old black and white, a big eight by 10 of me riding the horse in this outfit and everything. Full gallop, you know? And Walt Disney used to come out to that park with his family. They used to go on and, I'm going to build a park that's fantastic. And so he did. <laughs> and we went to the opening day at Disneyland. The next uh, week, my friend down the street, Arthur Robbins and I, created a park in his backyard, an amusement park. It was just a kid's thing. My mother calls up the LA Times. She knows somebody there and says, hey, you want to do this story? They did a story on us. That was my first exposure in a major newspaper. I was four and a half years old, you know? <laughs> A my born mother, entrepreneur. <laughs> well, my mother taught me how to publicize. And when I started, the, the first real stuff I was doing, I started doing, was getting publicity for our race team. Because we needed sponsors. And people will sponsor you if you're getting publicity all the time. And it worked. It worked really well. And indeed, I mean, Charlie and I started this company in 79, in September of 79, actually. And we got every major newspaper, magazine in the United States and outside the States. We were masters at making marvelous press releases, incredible photos, and great stories. And it got run. If I showed you, I mean, it was like, you know, New York Times, New Yorker, Cosmopolitan. I mean, I went from mainstream. You know, my mother would say, you go down to the magazine rack, you look for the thickest magazine, you look at the ad ratio in there, you go for the healthiest ones, you just start calling people on the masthead. And I would do that. Can I send you my stuff? This is what we're doing and everything. And we got traction. It was amazing. And I mean, they were like other guys making, you know, I, I mean, Joe Breeze made a, a brand new frame, you know, but for a couple road, of years for road before. bikes. For no, no, he made a mount, okay, you know, okay. an off-road bike. He called it a ballooner, right? And it was a bike with the twin laterals, and he made 10 of them. But that's it. He would make 10 bikes a year. And he wouldn't publicize his stuff, and none of these guys would, really. And the mar and, mar and growing like tiny, tiny, tiny. I mean, you got to realize, I mean, we got into this, you know, 75, it really started, you know, and it was like, wow, we can't, and, we, and Charlie started putting on the repack race, and it was a scene and everything. And we thought, man, this is big, but it was still, in 1970, there was probably 500 people that did it in the whole world, you know? 500, that's it, it's tiny. 
but I wanted to bring in a lot. I wanted this thing to grow. You know, I wanted to go to real numbers. And that's it. I mean, I think, you know, I can thank my family. We think big. It's like my, my great-grandfathers, one of them built all the rail up in Montana. I mean, he had all these work crews and ran this big thing. My other great-grandfather, he owned the San Diego transit system. You know, we don't, we don't think small in our family. We don't mess around. And it's still today, I mean, where I live, I live in Belvedere, California. My parents live there, they're half a mile away. They're still alive, thank God. My brother, he lives a block away from me. And this community is the richest community of a city under 2,000 in the United States. And I've been hanging out with these guys forever. And I know why they, they don't, none of them work nine to five jobs. They create the nine to five jobs. And it's really funny. I mean, I had an image of like just being some stupid hippie for a long time, but dude, you don't know where I grew up and the way I think, you know, and what I do. And you know, it's funny. I'm still, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. I mean, the mount, I mean, I'm totally like, it's great that the mountain bike is growing and spread around the world and everything, but man, we're killing ourselves and we haven't figured out our transport system at all. And this is where I'm at today, is I want to see change. And I want to see change, especially in our cities and where we live as, a, as humans and how we live and everything. And I know, I mean, this country has been a leader in, you know, in taking care of their citizens, of making solutions, not problems, you know? And it's, we're gonna do it. We're going to get to the next step. I mean, I'm happy, very happy that I've been, you know, I've gotten all this incredible traction and I've got fame and doors are open for me because of the bike and the mountain bike. But the opening of the door has given me a new opportunity and that's to go to the next level. And it's still a uh, uh, mountain bike and bike riders. We're still tiny. The whole thing's tiny. And I really, you know, the bike industry is tiny. You know, it's like, <laughs> I try to put things in perspective for our guys. And I'll say, yeah, in the United States, the bike industry is just a little bit smaller than the psychic industry and the tanning industries. <laughs> that's, that's perspective for you. That's perspective, you know? <laughs> I mean, bike people, I mean, we're this, you typically, we're like looking at ourselves. Yeah. We're just looking at ourselves. We're looking at all of our stuff. We don't get much perspective out of that. But isn't that, because I was thinking that when you started uh, kind of marketing this mountain bike and eventually your your own brand company, um, because I see the bike industry as, just like you said, it's very introvert in many ways and oh, it's yeah. super, conservative, oh, super yeah. conservative in many ways. So when you started marketing your, your brand of bikes and your bikes, um, you didn't specifically go for the bike crowd, the bike media, you went broader, you went bigger. Yes. And isn't this what you you want to do now as well? Like uh, you don't want to speak for the already uh, uh, dedicated I, riders. You want to spread it. You want to reach the, uh, the, 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 not the bike riders, but the, right. the guys in the cars. And that's the, where the opportunity is. Yeah. That's the opportunity. I mean, we're, you, you know, that's the thing. We're tiny. Therefore, man, there's a ton of opportunity here. Because what we have is a highly addictive activity. And we know it now. And, it, and I feel so empowered by the fact that the medical world is saying we were right. 
We are right. You need to use your body every day. You need to exercise. It makes you, you know, long-term a lot healthier, and it makes you mentally a lot more clear. And, uh, you know, the, it's just, it, it's a very elegant solution for a lot of the world's problems. And uh, that's, that's where, this is where I see the opportunity, you know, is in, in big time change. So I'm not satisfied. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, and, and, and once again, in the, bike, uh, in the bike culture, in what kind of clusters do you see the most um, developments and creativity today? Because now, like since you started it, it has evolved and it has branched out. And now you have a oh yeah. I mean, as far as like uh, the bike, the material itself, in the '60s and '70s, the bike became almost like a regulation piece of equipment. You know that uh, they were all the same. There was uh, you know everybody rode Campanello, and the group wouldn't change from year to year. And you'd look at the back of the rear derailleur and they'd tell you when the bike, when the derailleur was made. And uh, otherwise you couldn't tell. It was the same, the same, the same, the same, the same all the time. And now, you know, it's totally changed. I mean, in the 70s, it was uh, Francisco Moser, Greg LeMond, uh, the triathletes, uh, you know, in the, in, well, the end of the 70s and the 80s, you know, that really started to move things along, you know, and of course the mountain bike. And really proved that you know new technology uh, could do something, and the bike shows man in the 70s they were tiny, you couldn't believe how you know it's like uh, the bike show in Anaheim, California was smaller than a Trek World, you know, it's like one of our own shows these days, and uh, you know you could see everybody you could see every bike in a half an hour, and you could talk to everybody there in a day, you were done, it was nothing. You know, and, and then the 80s, a lot of people came into the industry. They came from the motorcycle industry. They came from, you know, the Cold War, you know, aerospace industry. And then, you know, and it took them a while to figure out how to really make bike equipment. And then a lot of small guys with CNN, CNC machines and things like that. All sorts of things started to pop up. And by the 90s, we got into like more and more technology. And it's like, man, it's so incredible what's available today, you know, and the bikes of today. I love modern bikes. I love what's going on. I love them for the way they ride, what they do, and the beauty. I mean, there's some real artists and, uh, you know, in our group and everything. But there's no lack of that. Um, but the ones that, the things that, the people that are coming up and really excite me are a lot of the bike activists and the young ones. And we've got the millennials hooked in. They know what they're talking about. They like they look at their parents and say, you know, you're married to that automobile, you know, and that thing is ridiculous, and you're ridiculous with it, you know. And they don't want to tell their parents that, but that's what they're saying. That's what they feel. They move back into the city. They don't uh, buy a car. I mean, car ownership is way down for young people. And you know, you think about it, it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, car in the United States, the average cost of a car per year is about seven thousand dollars. And you know, a millennial would much prefer to put that in their back pocket and pay for rent and food and other things. They think that's a waste of money. And then it doesn't work. You know, you can ride a bike around town and get there much faster, and you don't get a parking ticket, you don't have to pay for parking, and you lock up right by the front where you want to go, you get everything done. And I'll say, and the kids today are like, what do I need a car for? You know, I'll just I'll just get a zip car if I need it, you know, if I really need a car. 
And otherwise, I ride my bike, or they, or they prefer to do public transport, transport, even if the public transport will take twice as long, because they'll be on the phone talking to their friends, you know, texting and, and all that stuff, you know? They look at it as, man, I don't want to be the one responsible and have to, like, be tense and driving all the time. Whereas, you know, my generation, our older generation, is like, you're going to have to pry my cold, dead fingers <laughs> off the steering wheel, my friend. You know? So it's a real generational gap there. It's really funny. Um, if the UN would call you up and appoint you to uh, a position as bike president of the world, <laughs> Man, I'm right what there. would your agenda look like? What would you... Uh... Well, I put it in every school to start with. And actually, uh, John Burke, the president of Trek, he's with me. And we're, we've been giving a lot of money to uh, NICA, which is a, uh, our national organization for high school mountain biking. And it's been growing like crazy. And there's a 179,000 high schools in the United States And Trek has a goal. We're going to be in every single high school. And this is going to be the biggest influx of bike riders in the history of the United States. And we need this everywhere. And it's, you know, it's kids love riding mountain bikes. And I'm talking to a lot of city leaders about, we got to build tracks in the cities. And we have to make, uh, I'm looking at a whole, <laughs> this is crazy, but totally doable, is we start punching right through buildings. We go right over streets. We make it all, you know, fun too. And the guy who's pioneered that already for like the last 16 years, 17 years now, is Ray's Indoor Mountain Bike Park. And they started in Cleveland. Ohio, and now they got a second place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it's all indoors, and it runs in the wintertime. And he takes people off the street, all different abilities, and all kinds of disciplines. I mean, they got a big jump area. They've got a cross-country mountain bike area that's, you know, doable by everybody. They've got little skinnies. They got pump tracks. It's a lot of fun. So, and it's all made out of wood. And, you know, we can do this. This is part of the thing. I'm going to bring my kids back into the city, and it's going to be a healthy situation. You know, we're not going to have fine particulates. We're not going to have diesel vehicles in, the, in a city. No way. There will be electric vehicles. The vehicles, the whole thing is changing, too. I mean, we got this thing called the driverless car, and actually it's competition, you know, for the bike world. And this thing, I know what these guys at Apple and Tesla and, you know, Google and, I mean, come on, Ford, Mercedes, Audi, uh, you know, Toyota, everybody's working on this. But the popular model is going to, in the cities, is going to be this little tiny car, you know, sit two people side by side, or you have a four-person one, or you got just a, a stuff delivery one that's the size of a pallet rack. You know, you got a, another one that oh, doors open on it. It comes to your house. You open your door. You take your stuff out of it. This stuff you won't own. You'll order it up like an Uber cab. It's going to be like a crossbreed between drones 
self-driving cars than Uber. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you won't own it. It'll come to your house, it'll have your breakfast, it'll have your coffee, or maybe you just want to sleep on the way to work. And on the way home, you'll ne never get a DUI, right? <laughs> and it's, you know, the big thing about this is these vehicles will orbit. They won't be parked very often. And a car in the United States and most of the world spends 95% of its life parked. And you look at all the free parking, yeah, the car, the free crazy. car storage we got. Oh, it's crazy. crazy. You own the car, you don't own what's underneath it. Yeah. People in the United States think, I got a God-given right to park my car anywhere I please. I get a God-given right to like uh, drive that anywhere. Who gave me the right to come on every single street? This is crazy. And people, especially the young people, are waking up to like, this is nuts. So, you know, cities in the future, one-third of these streets, we want to tear out all the asphalt. That's poisonous. We want to have good quality soil. We want to have gardens. Because they know what we know it makes people healthier. And you think, okay, one third of the streets we tear out this asphalt, we put in gardens. Would you like to live on that street? I would love to live on that street. I know the property value of that street will go up. Another third of the streets will just be walking, slow bike riding, shopping. You know, maybe the last third will be, you know, you've got this vehicle, this driverless vehicle that will take you in there if you're too weak to get there on your own. And then the, the highways, the super highways, the only high, big highways that'll come into the cities will be bikeway. Overhead, more like a tube sometimes, big, big, wide tube, where you all go in one direction and you create a tailwind for yourself and the whole tube and everything. And the way you put in events, you create the tailwind. You make it all weather, it's quiet because it's a bike, you know, and fast to get across the city. But you don't want to have too many of those because you want people to interact with each other. It's much healthier to see people and to talk to people. So it's revolutionary thought, but boy, you know, there's a lot of places do you see, but that, that are was, doing it, they're yeah, thinking about it. That was my, my question. Do you see any uh, good examples, like best practice? Well, you know, there's like Hamburg is going to change their city. Paris is saying we're gonna like change our inner city. Yeah, they've had it's, their bike free uh, like every like one Sunday a month or something. Well, they've had that for quite some time. Madrid's going car free. Yeah. Paris is going car free. Cars as we know them, you know, you won't be able to pollute in town. You know, it's like it's crazy. If you're any type of an engineer, and you know, you look at the facts, 1.3 passengers per car. You look up how much space a car says, and it's like, hey. This is ridiculous for moving people around. 50 people can cause a tremendous traffic jam all on their own. Mm. It's, it's stupid, you know? And it's people can't envision and realize it. They just like are, you know, most, my generation in the States, oh man, they're just, it's hard for them to wrap their brains around this whole thing. I love that saying, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. That's quite correct. <laughs> it's really, it's a tough realization for some people. They're in big time denial. You know, but that's been changing. You know, the young kids are like, hey, I'm ready, let's go. And we're gonna do it. And it's, you know, it's cities like you go, uh, it's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, a couple of years ago, I met the mayor. We go on a bike ride, all the press is there. Why are you doing the press? Because I'm telling the press, your mayor's got the right idea. This is the right idea. We're gonna transform the city and make it a paradise. We're gonna attract the best and brightest. The, the economy of the city is, and this, this 
state and this country will go up because of it. And that is a fact. We know this, you know, we, where do you want to live? I want to live where it's intellectually stimulating and where it's healthy for myself and my children. This is the new paradise we're going to build. And, you know, you see, I mean, even in this building, they've got a wall of all types of greenery, real vegetation on it. That kind of stuff is happening. You know, I mean, a lot more, you know, greenery in the city, a lot more, you know, fruits, vegetables, things growing right there. You know, I mean, in the United States, we invented this type of food we call, you know, factory food. We grow it up on a factory farm. We ship it a thousand miles away. We thoroughly kill it and then we ship it back. What's its benefit? Shelf life. It'll last six months, you know, and that brings down the cost. But man, there's no nutrients. We destroy the soil, you know, we just put chemicals on it all the time and we're missing our nutrients and people suffer. People are suffering like crazy. We're going to change it. And it's, you know, the localization of a lot of these things. I mean, already, I mean, electricity is being localized. You know, people have solar panels, people have windmills, and now we got the Tesla battery. That's revolutionary. All this stuff is changing. You know, it's, there are all kinds of technologies we have no idea about yet, and they will come. There are things we haven't even dreamed about yet, but they will come. If you go back 100 years, there are all kinds of technologies that no one was dreaming about, was barely dreaming about you know, that didn't happen. And people now that say impossible, 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 <laughs> they're big fools. And it's um, exponentially uh, growing and uh, like one idea leads to another, which leads to 10 new ideas. That's and, uh, quite correct. It's so correct. I mean, we got these big fat brains for a reason. We need to be civilized and figure out a real civilization. Thank you uh, so much for taking your time. You're very welcome. Husky is produced by Husky Productions and recorded in cooperation with Lundhogs. The music is made by Joel Mull. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you.